You are not a Christian because you hold his hand, but you come to a saving faith and walk with him because he holds your hand and he's got you and will never let you go. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. The scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 10. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Romans chapter 10 as we read together verses 9 through 17. Romans chapter 10. You'll find it on page 1760 of the church Bible. Romans chapter 10. We're breaking in at verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes these words, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. One of the things I like to do when I have a spare odd moment is to visit used or second-hand bookstores. And I love to go in and look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books all sitting there. Now, I like to work my way through the categories. Then I like to find the oldest books that are there. And I love to make my way through. And the first thing I look at is, when was it printed? Who was the printer? Where was it printed? And it's absolutely fascinating for me to do that. Now, I have to also confess, this behavior drives my wife nuts. And she cannot understand why I want to look at books that are old and dusty, and she says, you don't know where they've been. So that's, that's Ruth's entire take on all of this. And a couple of weeks ago, I visited a website that I've been on many times called abe.com, A-B-E, and they deal with used and rare books. And there was an in-house magazine uh, article, or at least read like a magazine article from one of their managers. And he is describing some of the things they have found stuck in the back of rare books. And here they come. This is his top 11 surprises to be found in old books. Number one, 
On one occasion, they found 40 $1,000 bills. That's a book worth buying, wouldn't you agree? 40 $1,000 bills tucked in at the back. Secondly, there was a Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card. Frankly, I have no idea what that means, but apparently it's quite rare and something that everyone would want. Thirdly, they discovered a marriage certificate from 1879. Fourthly, a baby's tooth. And you can imagine, mum, so excited that Tooth Fairy didn't come that night and put it in the book just to look after it, and then, of course, forgot about it. Thirdly, or fifthly rather, a diamond ring. Number six, social security card. Number seven, a World War II U.S. ration books complete with stamps unused. So that's interesting. A pair of scissors, a valid driver's license, a cockroach that mercifully was dead, so that was okay. And finally, and I would never have believed this, a strip of bacon. Now, why one would put a strip of bacon in a used book for safekeeping, I have no idea, but that was there. The magazine goes on, or the article rather, on their website goes on to say this. The manager said he is most moved when he comes across little love notes that are deeply personal and profoundly moving. Someone has written a note to a husband or a wife or a parent or a grandchild and slipped it in the book after reading it and thinking, I want to hold on to this forever, put it in the book, and then, of course, forgot where they had put in it. Now, my sense on a Sunday morning of coming to the book is that I think on a Sunday we come to this book with a sense of anticipation, a sense of excitement, a sense that what we learn here and read and apply is for us deeply moving, profoundly personal, because when we open up God's Word on a Sunday morning, in essence, we are prayerfully saying, Father, speak to us. Make Your Word come to life for us. Enable us, please, to see its relevance in my life after the week I've just had or the week I'm facing. Father, speak to us the very words of God. And that's why we spend time on a Sunday morning looking at particular words and phrases and understand all that God is saying. And as we come to Romans chapter 10, there's a few things you need to know. If you were with us last Sunday morning, Romans chapter 9 contains some of the most profound, rich, complex theological concepts found anywhere in the Scriptures. It talks in detail about predestination, God's foreknowledge, His electing love, and that's just part of it. And some of you last Sunday morning spoke, spoke to me on the way out and said, Richard, thank you for that. I don't understand it, but thank you for it. There's a lot packed into Romans chapter 9. 
And if you found Romans 9 hard going to deal with those subtle and at times nuanced theological concepts, Romans chapter 10 is the opposite. Paul is writing in some of the clearest, most succinct, accessible, warm language he can use anywhere in the entire book. Anywhere. Those of you familiar with Romans will know this, that the Apostle Paul wrote it probably in the year 56 or 57 AD, probably around the springtime. He had wintered up in the city of Corinth in Greece, and he was writing to the church at the heart of the empire. He was writing to the church in Rome. Folks who were not used to attending church on a Sunday morning, and like any congregation on a Sunday morning, there would be a mixed group of people there. Some who had a real and genuine faith. Others had come asking all sorts of questions. Who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Why do we need other gods over and above Zeus and Apollos and all the Roman or Greek gods beforehand? But here is what I think was happening that even though that would be a mixed group, some at the very center with real dynamic living faith and others full of questions, those with the questions I think would be asking, or at least may describe themselves something like this. I knew my friend. I knew him well. And then something changed him. And now he comes here on a Sunday morning, and he talks about faith. And he talks about having prayer answered. And he talks about God as if He is real. And I want to know what has happened to my friend. I want to understand what he's talking about. I want to grasp these new concepts. I want to know this Jesus, the Messiah, that He spoke of. Now, that was then. Now, come forward 2,000 years. And sometimes on a Sunday morning, especially at this time of year, coming towards the end of January, I know I will have a mixed congregation in front of me at all services this morning. Some have walked the Christian road for decades, growing, developing, moving on in their faith, have a faith that is rich and wonderful and deep, and others full of questions perhaps coming for the last three, four, five Sundays, coming just before Christmas. You're not quite sure when to stand or when to sit. You've got all sorts of questions. And you may be here this morning saying, Richard, I always enjoy what you've got to say, but there are some things I just want to hold my hand up and say, hold on a second. Explain that to me. Just lay it out in simple terms so I can grasp it. When you talk about a living faith. What does that mean? When you talk about a personal relationship with Christ, what does that mean? How does someone move from simply going to church as routine, custom, background, going with your parents? You understand about prayer, but you are aware there is more to a living faith than you are currently experiencing. And if that describes you, come with me, please, to verse 8. We didn't read it together, so let me look at it again for a second 
as we move forward. And at verse 8, the Apostle Paul is saying this, the Word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith we are proclaiming. And what he's saying there is this, you may have a Bible, you may enjoy coming to worship, it may have moved you, and you understand what's going on. But then he takes it a step further, because he's saying being familiar, understanding, grasping some of what's going on is not the same thing as a living, dynamic, real, genuine faith. And you see what he's saying? Now he lays it out. What is the difference? And the difference is this. The person with a living, dynamic faith is described in verse 9. Look at it. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, what does that mean? It means this. Or rather, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Paul is not laying out here this. If you say these three words, you're in. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is Lord. It's not a magic formula. It's not a special equation. It's not, a living relationship is not about saying certain words. Notice what he says. If you confess Jesus is Lord, and confession comes after commitment. Back in September and early October, I had a run of weddings here at First Presbyterian. I must have had three or four in a row. And each time a couple would come and stand in front of me, when they took their vows, they were confessing a commitment they had already made to each other. And that's the difference between religious observance and deep, living, radical, transforming faith. There is a step of commitment. And what Paul is saying here is this, if you can say, Jesus is Lord. In other words, if you can say, I have submitted my entire life to Him, handed it over to Him, given Him my heart, my mind, my soul, my very being, invited Him to come and live within me in order that I can follow Him all my days, that's the point of commitment. And following commitment comes confession. So, when Paul says, Anyone who confesses Jesus is Lord. It's not simply about saying words. It's a matter of the heart. If you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that 14 inches between the head and the heart makes a world of a difference when it comes to faith. So, let me ask you this morning this. Allow me, please, to probe with all of the sincerity I can. Can you honestly, this morning, put your hand on your heart and say, He is mine? 
and I love Him, and I confess Him, and I do gladly because He's forgiven me and changed me and transformed me, and I know Him, and each day is more and more exciting as I walk with Him and understand His love and His grace and His mercy. That's what it means to have a living faith. That's what it means to understand this, that there are things in my life I am deeply ashamed of, because after commitment and confession also mixed in there is conviction. And please remember, He did not come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live, and He touches and renews our hearts, and He gives us spiritual life for the first time, and He cleanses and forgives and renews us and then sustains us. That's part of the confession and the commitment, recognizing that there is sin in our lives that need to be dealt with. They have to be cleansed. It has to change. And you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, hold on, I was listening, I'm with you so far, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, but are you honestly telling me that every sin I have ever committed, every thought, every word, every deed, every horrendous thing I am too ashamed to even think about, He is willing to forgive and renew me and allow me to start again? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what the gospel is. And understand this, please, that there is nothing you have ever done, no thought you have ever had, no motivation or desire that will come as a surprise to Him, for He knows you intimately, deeply, exhaustively, completely. And hear this, He who knows you best loves you the most. Please get that. He who knows you best loves you the most. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But He does. And that's what Paul has been talking about for the last ten chapters his love and grace and mercy and goodness, and there is no valley too deep, no barrier too high, no place so dark where His love cannot reach and transform you. You may be sitting here this morning, and this is taking you back to your childhood, and you're thinking, oh, it has been so long since I heard the gospel. You may be watching on television this morning, sitting in a bedsit, and your life is falling, it's crumbling before you, turning to ash, and the hope of the gospel is there. You may be watching in a, telev- a television in a hospital ward, and He's reaching out to you this morning with hope and grace and a new opportunity and a new day. And that's what Paul is saying, and that's his appeal to us this morning. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, 
God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me ask you, are you ready to make that commitment this morning? Are you ready to begin again and move away from religious observance to real and genuine lasting faith? It's not an easy thing to do, to completely and utterly surrender your life and say, Father, I cannot deal with this anymore. I cannot live without knowing you. Take it. Take my life. Change it. Transform it. That's the power of the gospel. And notice what else he says. You will be saved. Do you see that? You will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. What does he mean, justified? Well, allow me, please, a moment of indulgence as I explain a theological term, and it's this. Justification is simple and straightforward, and it means this that when you get to that point of utter commitment and faith and trust in Him, from that moment onward, He looks at you just as if you had never sinned. Never. Never. And please hear this. The temptation for us is to look at sins of today and yesterday but that's not the totality of the gospel, because the gospel is this, not just sins of today and yesterday, but all of the sins for the rest of your day are gone, over, forgiven, wiped away, cleansed forever. He doesn't do half a job. He's not waiting and saying, well, I'll forgive them for the past, but what will they be like tomorrow? or this afternoon, or the next day, just as if you'd never sinned forever. And from that point on, you belong to Him. You are saved utterly, fully, completely forever. And now you may be tempted to say, okay, Richard, I've got it. I see it. But how can I be sure Aren't there people in the Bible who lose their faith after coming to a living, real, genuine, authentic faith? Aren't there people who lose their faith? What if I lose my faith? Well, let me suggest this. David, in the Old Testament, had turned his back on the things of God and was wandering away on his own became involved with a lady, had an adulterous affair, murdered her husband, and had wandered very far from the things of God. He'd fallen seriously and drastically, but not finally and ultimately. Let me say that again because it's an important distinction, and let me make sure I've got the language absolutely right. It's this, that can you fall seriously and radically? Yes, you can. 
but you cannot fall ultimately, totally, and finally, because you now belong to Him. Coming to a living faith doesn't make us perfect people. It doesn't mean we'll always get it right. Neither does it mean we won't have things we are sorry for. Neither does it mean there aren't old patterns to break and a new life to live. It means all of that. But understand this, you are not a Christian because you hold His hand, but you come to a saving faith and walk with Him because He holds your hand, and He's got you and will never let you go. That's what's going on here. That's why the gospel revolutionized an empire and has for the last two millennia and will continue to. And that's why it's still good news today. He will never let you go, and He will never let you down. And if you are here this morning and struggling and frustrated and there is pain and difficulty and complications in your life, and you're uncertain about what tomorrow holds, or you are frustrated that the challenges have come your way, and it does feel as if your life is falling around you, and you're saying, Richard, where is God in the midst of all of this? Well, understand again what Paul is saying. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved totally, finally. This is not a passage about feasibility or probability, possibility or potential. It is definitive and clear, and you are His forever. And if you need to leave here this morning with a smile on your face, you need to leave encouraged and strengthened and uplifted and determined to begin again, please hear these words. And they come at the end of Romans chapter 8, some of the greatest words in all of Scripture, some of them we have known since childhood. And Paul writes this, "'For I am convinced,' that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers or height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You belong to Him. Remind yourself of it hold on to it, stand firmly with it. You are His, and there is nothing you are facing that cannot be dealt with when He holds on to you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture thank You for Your amazing love to us. Enable us, please, this week not to surrender to the circumstances of our lives, for we know that You will not abandon us to the emotion of the moment or the destructive forces of our own sin. Father, strengthen us, 
encourage us, enable us, please, to walk with you the rest of our days. And enable us, please, O oh God, to feel and sense your presence with us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a healing prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you are representing who needs prayer for physical healing, emotional healing, or forgiveness. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus, the healer and redeemer, in a deep and meaningful way.